0: Now friends, if you would, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And we'll be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, continuing our series in the letter of Philippians, nearing the ends now, on the home stretch. And so we're in chapter 4. I'm going to read for us verses 2 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. I entreat Yodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace be with you all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we consider uh, the words of your servant this morning, uh, by your Spirit, may you illuminate the text for us, Uh, uh, Preach through me a better sermon than I could ever preach and ever prepare. Work in our hearts that we might store up your word, that we might cherish and love it, that we might practice it in our lives. And may uh, we do all this uh, to the glory of your name. Amen. Well, you might have uh, heard the joke before that you should never pray for patience because God might give it to you. He might put you in a situation where your patience is tested, where you actually uh, need to grow and need to learn this kind of patience, where it needs to be strengthened. And that's sometimes how we approach this text today. Uh, we we uh, see that there's an ideal, there's the ideal that we need to be patient, but then there's, then there's the practical, then there's the everyday, where you're behind the slow driver or you're waiting to hear back from a a job application or or to get test results back, or you're telling your children something for the 10th time, whatever it might be, you have to be careful what you wish for, careful to what you pray for that's the mentality we can sometimes approach in this passage we've been reading throughout this letter we've had so many sermons on the importance of unity the importance of having joy the importance of being of one mind and of of one accord and we've been saying yes and amen to all that but then we see what it actually entails in the here and now in the practical outworking of it we're told to to leave behind anxiety about the future and to trust in the lord but that's easier when things are easy and much more difficult when things are hard. We're told to think in, uh, about worthy and excellent things, but it's easy to get distracted by all the, the ugly, all the, all the horrible, all the, all the uh, pressing things that are happening in the world around us instead. And so we're moving now to the, in these, these next three Sundays, we're moving to the end of, of the letter and we're getting to the practical application, the real life experience that results from all the doctrine and all the theology that Paul has been working through so far in the letter. And there's certainly, there's already been plenty of areas of, of application uh, throughout that we've, we've talked about. But here, Paul turns specifically to the Philippian church. There are some immediate right now, present difficulties this church is facing that Paul wants them to address. Specifically, he gives them three things. These, these three, uh, three results or three applications, uh, three, three uh, things that work themselves out from this heavenly mindset we've been talking about. Back to back to back, he's, he tells us these things. After telling them to stand firm, have this, this heavenly mindset, these are the three results. They are to agree in the Lord having the same mind, not dividing over unnecessary things. They are to find peace by trusting in God without anxiety. And above all, they are to think and dwell on what is excellent, namely on, on Christ himself. So those are the, those are the results of, of having a heavenly mindset. That's what the practical uh, outworking of this, this doctrine and application, this is how it works itself out in their lives. So let's look at these these three things in order this morning. So the first thing we see in verses 2 and 3 is that there is to be agreement and not division. In in chapter 1, verse 27, we talked about that being the main thesis, the big idea of the entire letter. And so that, that first big section... 127 through 2 4, it, it gives us the theological imperative of living worthy of the inheritance we have as kingdom citizens and recipients of God's grace proclaimed in the gospel. Because God has saved us into his family and made us members and citizens of his kingdom, then we must live like members of his kingdom. We should model our lives around the ethics, around the rules, around the commandments that govern this kingdom that we've been given, this citizenship that we have. And so that's why he says in chapter 2, you can look back quickly there, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." But each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It is because that is the standard that he now comes to this specific disagreement that's going on in the church. There's this disagreement and division between these two women. And he, he tells them that they need to put away their disagreements and they need to agree in the Lord. And so this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the doctrine is put into practice. In other words, what Paul's is saying is, he's saying, don't say yes and amen to chapter 2, verse 4, if you're not going to say yes and amen to chapter 4, verse 2. That's what he's saying. So let's take a step back. Let's think about the situation. So, what, what are we to make of this situation? Who are these, who are these women, and, and what is this disagreement that, that they have? Well,. We don't know exactly who these women are. We also don't know exactly what their disagreement uh, was. We don't know what caused such a disagreement that Paul felt it necessary to address them in this letter. But there are some things that we can't say about it. And we can see that it had caused significant division in the church. It was the elephant in the room. It was the thing that everyone knew was going on, but nobody wanted to talk about. And so when Epaphroditus, he, he comes and brings this gift to Paul and, and he, he comes to Paul, uh, Paul would have asked him and he would have said, how is my beloved church in Philippi? How are they doing? Tell me everything, good and bad. And so Epaphroditus, he's telling him about the church. Well, the church is going, going really well, uh, except, well, I guess I should mention this one thing. Uh, There's some really hard disagreement going on and we're just not able to figure out a solution to it. Something something needs to be done, but we, we can't reach any kind of agreement. And so this is one of the main reasons why Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. He wrote the letter the way that he did. He lays out the doctrine of joy. He lays out the doctrine of unity. He shows how Jesus is the supreme example and the reason and the cause for us to pursue joy and unity. How himself, how Timothy, how Epaphroditus, they are all examples pointing back to Christ as as the supreme example uh, of their lives. And he wrote that because he wanted to show these two women and to show all the church, the whole church, a better way. And so he does that, and he does that by, by naming them, he names their names in, in, the, in, the, in the letter. And I think, at least for me, we, we see that at times, and our first thought is, wow, that's, that's kind of harsh, Paul. Why, why did you have to name them by name? And I know all of you, you love getting named in the, in the sermon uh, from the pulpit. I'm sure that's just a, you're always waiting, oh, I hope it's me today or, or something. We think it might be rude, it might, it might uh, put the spotlight on us to address them from the pulpit, as it were. But naming them, this is important, naming them in the letter was not Paul's way of shaming them. Naming them was not his way of shaming them, but it was quite the opposite. To have left them anonymous would have been considered a harsh treatment by Paul. And th- this matter had become so well known that if he was to try to make the same point without naming names, everyone would have, would have turned and, like, he's, he's talking about you, I think. And when they read the letter out loud, I said, I think he's talking about you, Syntyche, there. But rather, in Paul's day, it was customary. It was, it was customary to leave uh, to those who are considered enemies, if you're addressing them, you would leave them unnamed as a way of belittling them, as a way of considering them not worthy to even be mentioned by name. And so Paul, he does not consider these women enemies. That, that's the point here. He does not consider them enemies, but he considers them dear sisters in the faith who need to be reconciled to one another and reconciled to the church. And so he names them specifically, not to shame them, but because he loves them. Now, we still don't know exactly the exact nature of the disagreement. We don't know why they had such a sharp division that was growing and people kind of taking sides in the matter. Well, we can say that this was not a, degree, a disagreement over, over any kind of heinous sin. It wasn't a, a disagreement over any kind of doctrinal importance. You know, Paul, he's never shy in any of his letters to denounce false doctrine. Uh, you, you heard earlier, Clint read for us uh, Galatians chapter 3. Uh, Paul is he's always willing to say what needs to be said. Oh, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. Because there was disagreement over doctrine, over the gospel itself. But we don't see that here. Rather, we, we have a disagreement over a matter of Christian liberty. Or perhaps there were just some personalities that, that clashed. Maybe, maybe there was some hurt. Maybe there was... Uh, some sin in the past that had been forgiven, had been resolved, but there is still some bitterness that had taken root in their lives, and, and something was going on. And it was spilling over into the life of the church. So, so who then does Paul insist needs to take the first step in seeking reconciliation? They both do. Both should be willing. This is not a matter we see of any kind of, of heinous sin between a victim and a perpetrator. Uh, elsewhere in such situations, again, Paul is clear to say the offender, he needs to be disciplined. He needs to be even excommunicated from the church if that's necessary to restore him back to repentance and bring him back to the church. But here, this is not, we're not talking about that. This is something that is. Uh, Where two sinners are just disagreeing and they need to agree in the Lord. And so here we see these two women, neither sinning against God, yet their personalities are clashing. And so what do they do in this situation? Paul reminds them and points them back to Christ. You need to remember Christ. The same Christ, who was the Son of God, who was equal with the Father in majesty and glory and honor, who who had equality with God, but he did not consider that equality something to be used for his own advantage, something to be grasped onto. But he willingly, humbly submitted himself in obedience, took on the form of a servant, was obedient even unto death for the sake of his people. And because that's true, because that's who our our Savior is, because that's who our Lord is, the Lord and King of our life, then we ought to live the way He lived. That's what it means to live worthy of the gospel. So if you're wondering how to live worthy of the gospel, Yodi and Syntyche, if if you are really serious about living that way, then this is the first step of doing that. You need to agree in the Lord. And notice how Paul, how he says it. He says, I entreat. Now, so important as well. I entreat. I, I do not command. Though it is a gospel imperative, it is something that we ought to be doing, we need to be doing. But he says, I entreat. He entreats. He pleads because this is the way of, of the Christian life. It's, it's voluntary humility. It's not a coerced, uh, a dead formalism where you go through the steps, but he genuinely wants true, at the heart level, Forgiveness and repentance and mutual agreement and understanding. He wants us to live that, that way. With true humility, from a genuine heart. That's, that's the desire that Paul has for these women. And there's so much more that we could say on this point. Uh, but one last thing notice everyone else that Paul mentions here in, this, in these two verses. He asks for the, the help of, of the true companion. In this situation, this true companion, would you help these women who also they all have labored with me in the gospel? Uh, the identity of this of this figure is is uh, remains a mystery and is is much debated, and people speculate and there 's been uh, speculation uh, some people have suggested one of the elders at the church, others have suggested Epaphroditus himself. this is a way of Paul addressing him here. Uh, some consider the Greek word behind true companion. That Greek word should actually be understood as a, as a proper name, as the, as the person's name, which just means true companion. Regardless of, of whoever this person was, the point remains that this, this companion, along with, along with Clement, who's mentioned here, along with, he says, the rest of my fellow workers, everyone, it's not just a matter of two people disagreeing, but it's everyone, we're, we're all in this together, to use just a, a hokey kind of phrase. But we're, we're all together in this, in this life, doing life together with one another. We all have a part to play. It affects all of us. That, that's Paul's point here. And so why must they labor together? Why must they struggle together to achieve this kind of agreement and unity and being of one mind? Well, they need to because Paul reminds them that these are all those whose names are written in the book of life. Their names are written in the book of life. And so they belong to one another. And so there will, there will always be disagreements. You know, this is such an important passage, these two verses. It, it could have been a whole sermon. At one point it was its own sermon in the, in the list, but we, we've... Uh, as the schedule worked itself out, we, we've combined it together into this sermon today. There's so many things we can, be, we can say about this. And unfortunately, it's so true that sometimes Christians, we, we hurt one another. That's part of being a family. Is, is, uh, family members say things, they do things that are hurtful. What's, what's important is that we have forgiveness. What's important is that we cannot let that take away from the eternal truth that we are all members of the same body. We're co-heirs with Christ of everlasting life. Our names are written next to each other in God's book. And so if we keep that future perspective in mind, if we keep that eternal uh, destiny in mind, that'll help us have more peace. In the present, and may God grant us that peace in the presence, in, in the present, so that we can seek true unity in those moments. And that leads us right into the next, the next result, the next thing we see of having a heavenly mindset here. So look there with me now at uh, verses four through seven. This is the next point that Paul wants them and, and wants us to walk away with as we consider uh, uh, this heavenly mindset. The second thing he wants us to see is one of the results is that we'll have. Uh, we'll find peace in God and everything, and we'll leave behind all anxiety, and uh, we'll lead reasonable and joy-filled lives instead. There's so many, so many things that Paul mentions here in just these few verses that can seem kind of disconnected until we realize that they're all part of what it means to be united to Christ. These are all benefits of living in light of Christ's return and living in the power of the Spirit. So Paul says we should rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's a great bumper sticker phrase. It's, a lot of, it's everywhere on people's walls at home or on your fridge. It's a wonderful verse. And what Paul is saying is the joy should be the demeanor of the Christian. It should be the general tenor of, of the Christian's life. It should be the vibes that the Christian gives off. No, I, I uh, as, as a, just a millennial growing up on the Internet, I, I take full fault in the, in the absolute uh, deterioration of the English language and the introduction of slang into everyday speech. I think the other generations, they've, they've ran with it, so I apologize for that. But uh, speaking of, of naming names, I, he's not here, so I can name him today, but I was talking with Philip Barnett about this the other day, because sometimes I'll, I'll use just slang, Unironically, but if I'm being, or I'll try to use it ironically. If I'm being honest, I use it kind of unironically. I kind of do enjoy saying it. Anyway, what's the? Why are you saying this, Levi? You're all looking at me with dead faces. Why are you saying this? I'm saying, what's the vibe of the Christian? Okay, what, what's the vibe check? What, what 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 should Christians act like? What should they be like? This is what Paul's saying here. Is the the demeanor, the the tenor of our lives, the The general atmosphere that surrounds us should be one of joy and one of reasonableness and gentleness and love for others. As far as it concerns us, we ought to be full of joy and reasonable. Reasonable meaning gentle or meaning kind or meaning not insisting on our own way. There are some things that we'll insist on. We'll insist on Christ's way. We'll insist on the gospel. We'll insist on the truth of Scripture but when it comes to matters that are indifferent, when it comes to matters of Christian liberty, we don't insist on our own way. It's not my way or the highway. It's Christ's way. And, it, and it's what is best for you and not necessarily what's best for me. Because what's best for me is what's best for you and what's best for all of us. So this, this heavenly mindset, it, it's, it's a holistic thing. This is how we ought to live, not just on a Sunday morning, but, but on Monday and throughout the week. How we, how, we, uh, how we live uh, uh, on Sunday should be how we live throughout the week. It's, it's, it's an it's a entire different mindset and worldview through which we, we see uh, the world and which we act in the world. But without God, with a with mindset on earthly things, this, this isn't possible. But when we understand that we belong to Christ, that he's coming again, you see Paul say, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand, so therefore you ought to have peace. You see, all this is wrapped together. This leads Paul to say and to tell us to not be anxious about anything. Again, that's easier said than done. It's not, it's not as simple as me just shouting, "Stop being anxious!" It's like, "Oh, you're giving me anxiety about trying to not be anxious right now. Please stop, please stop yelling." But rather the Christian, what Paul's is saying is, the Christian needs to be living in the present and to be trusting in the Lord for the future. Our, our men's study has been reading through the Screwtape uh, screw Letters, a uh, collection of those phys, uh, fictional letters that, that Lewis uh, wrote uh, from a uh, seasoned senior demon instructing this, this young protege on how best to, to tempt and to, to attack this patient, this young Christian man. So they're discussing questions, one of the letters, they're discussing questions of time and of eternity. And, and Screwtape is encouraging uh, him to, to set this Christian's mind solely on the future, and to get him to think about how wonderful the future will be, get him only thinking about that and and that everything is going to work out for him and it's going to be wonderful, and if that's where his mind is, then you know what's going to happen when he does get to the future and things don't work out the way he expected them to. If, on the other hand, Screwtape writes, and listen to this, if, on the other hand, he is aware that horrors may be in store for him, and he is praying for the virtues wherewith to meet them. And meanwhile, concerning himself with the present, because there, and there alone, all duty, all grace, all knowledge, and all pleasure dwell. His state is very undesirable and should be attacked at once. See, Lewis, he's exactly right here. Instead of, of uh, worrying about the future, which, which God alone knows... We ought to pray for the virtue. We ought to pray for the the strength through His grace to face whatever might come, good or bad. And then we must live in the present because the present is the only place where we make our choices. The present is the only place where we can daily obey Christ. The present is the only place where we can, right here now, enjoy His benefits. And so I can speak only from my own experience when I, I have not been offering up my future to the Lord in prayer. When I'm not doing that, I'm guaranteeing that I will have anxiety over the future. Prayer is, is it's the life breath of the Christian. We starve ourselves of that spiritual oxygen when we're not praying. And when we bring our anxieties and we bring our cares to the Lord, what we're telling Him is that, Jesus, You, you are the God over my future, and not me. And so I'm giving it all up to You. Help me to trust in you. I surrender it all. And that is a freeing thing. That's a peace that surpasses all understanding because we, we don't understand. We, do, we don't understand the future. We're not capable of that kind of knowledge. God hasn't given that kind of knowledge to us. But He does give us peace. He offers us peace that surpasses all understanding. And so we can give Him the future. That's the best possible place for our future because God is all-powerful and he's also all-good and he always does what's right. And that's why Peter writes uh, uh, that we should cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for you. I love that verse, a wonderful verse. And so that is another result of this this heavenly mindset that we can have this kind of peace. All right, and finally, third thing as, as we wrap up here this morning. A third result of this heavenly mindset, verses 8 and 9, is that we think and dwell on Christ himself. Christ He's not mentioned by name in these verses, but every single word that Paul uses describes who Christ is. Christ is the perfect image, and he's the example of all of these things. Paul says, whatever is true, well, well, what is true? What is truth? You know, the great, the great and tragic irony of, of, of Jesus' trial under Pontius Pilate is that Pilate looks Jesus straight in the eyes and he asks him, what is truth? Looking truth directly in the face. Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, he, he never told a lie. He, he can't tell a lie. George Washington, he probably did tell a lie at one point in his life. But Jesus, he he never told a lie. He cannot lie. It would go against his very nature as God. He he is truth. His word is the truth. So when he prays in his high priestly uh, prayer in John 17, he prays and he says, Thy word is truth. It's not that his word is true, it's not that God's word uh, conforms itself to some uh, outside standard that is true. But God words, God's Word itself is that standard. It is truth. And Jesus is the truth. So if we are to think on whatever is true, if, if we are to wonder what is truth, what is true? How do we understand? How do we make sense of the world? Well, we need to consider His Word. We need to consider Christ Himself. Whatever is honorable, whatever is worthy of respect or above reproach or noble or dignified, whatever Worthy of reverence and respect. We can see these qualities in others. We can see them in our parents at times. We can see them in in people we look up to. But every human has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God alone and the God-man, Jesus Christ, he alone is honorable. He alone is worthy of our respect. Would it not be the case that the sinless, perfect Son of God is worthy of all our honor? Whatever is just, Christ alone, he's, he's worthy of that title as well because He's the perfect judge. The judge who will come to judge the living and the dead. And we can, call, we can, we can all come up, of, come up with examples of our justice system that has failed. There are times in our imperfect system that people receive injustice rather than justice. But that's not true of God. No one ever, no one who has ever lived, no one uh, now, no one who will ever live, has ever or will ever receive injustice from God. They will either receive His just, perfect justice and judgment, paying the penalty due for their sin and rebelling against God. That is a just punishment. Or, by God's grace, the good news of the gospel is that some receive His mercy where he pays the penalty of their sin on their behalf. But you see, all of humanity receives his justice or his mercy. No one ever receives injustice from God's hand. He alone is just. Whatever is pure, Christ is the blameless one. He he alone is the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The the good news of the gospel, again, is that uh, Christ makes us, his church, to be spotless and blameless. He says in, in Ephesians, Uh, that Christ, He loves the church in this way, makes us holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. Christ alone, He's pure and blameless, and, and He takes on our sin. We receive His purity, His righteousness, His blamelessness, and we're made... Beautiful the way He is beautiful. We're made holy the way He is holy. We become lovely the way He is lovely. Paul, Paul says again, whatever is lovely. My, my favorite verse, Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that thing will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, so that I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's why I want to be in the house of the Lord. I want to be there so I can look upon you, Jesus. Because you're so beautiful, because you're so lovely, because you're altogether worthy, that's why I want to be in your presence. To gaze upon your beauty and to inquire in your temple. I want to look upon you and I want to learn more about you. Is Christ lovely to you? Do you you delight in Him? If you do not, then then pray that God would, would fix that He would fix your standards of beauty, that He would tune your affections and your desires toward Him. We're out of time. Whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, we don't need to say anymore, this is all who Christ is. We look to Christ. As we think about these things, as we we consider these attributes and these qualities, it will naturally draw us to Christ. This is the kind of mindset that we are to have. This is the result of, of having this mindset set on heavenly things, not on earthly things. So let me just end with this. One of the most remarkable uh, figures, I have to end with this. This is a Scottish Presbyterian reference, Bruce. I have to end with this. I I can't leave this out. Young minister in the 19th century, Robert Murray McShane, he had a profound impact in ministry, which began when he was only about 23 years old, is when he was, uh, had finished seminary, was ordained, and started his ministry. He continues to be influential even today, and, and perhaps if you've ever done a Bible in a year reading plan, you might have done the reading plan, the McShane reading plan that he developed for his people, that many people still use today. But he only ministered for a short amount of time before ill health took him when he was 29 years old. And in that short time, God used him in mighty ways. This young man, he loved to think and to dwell on Christ and the things of Christ. So listen as we close. Listen to what he writes. He says, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all seeing eyes settled on you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. That man knew his Savior. He knew that he was altogether lovely. May we seek to cultivate that kind of lifestyle, that kind of mindset that would see Christ for who he is. He is altogether lovely. He's altogether worthy of our praise. So let's let's look to him, church. Let's pray to him now. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we confess that we do not find you altogether lovely at times but we pray that you would forgive us of the worldly things and desires that would distract us from you. At the same time, we confess that we do find you lovely and honorable and worthy of praise. And so continue to fan that flame that you have ignited in us. Work in us, Lord, as we dwell on these things. May you grant us this peace that surpasses all understanding. And as we have found peace with you, may you give us peace with one another. Give us the grace to agree always in the Lord. We pray all these things in the lovely, mighty, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.